The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Benjamin here. Welcome to The Nature Podcast. As we feel our way into the new year, we're going to repeat something we did this time last year, and that is to take a bit of a dive into some of the stories that have appeared in The Nature Briefing over the past days and weeks. And joining me once again to do so are Noah Baker. Noah, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here as ever. And senior editor of The Nature Briefing, and a voice that will be familiar to many people who listen to The Nature Podcast, and that is, of course, Flora Graham. Flora, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. Happy New Year. Well, we've got a few stories that we're going to cover in this show. And Flora, you're going up first, and we'll begin with a significant story and a timely one, and that is the climate pledges of Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or Lula as he's commonly known. Yeah, this is an election that, of course, was followed by scientists around the globe because the leadership of Brazil holds in their hand, you know, one of the biggest sinks of global carbon emissions in the world, not to mention global biodiversity, which is the Brazilian Amazon. And the new president made a lot of environmental-based promises while running. And I think that his win is seen by many as a hopeful step forward to maybe make some changes to the legislative priorities of his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. I have to say, all of my Brazilian friends were watching this like long runoff election that ended up happening so closely. And I was interested to talk to them, many of which aren't scientists, about how much of this is about climate change. And a lot of the concern was about climate change and about the Amazon because there's also just a lot of love for the Amazon within the Brazilian people as well. And it was being decimated under Bolsonaro. Yeah, deforestation in the Amazon reached its highest levels since 2008 under the last administration. But it goes beyond climate, of course, into the well-being of this huge biodiversity sector, an area that we're all thinking of because of the recent meeting that happened in Montreal, which we're calling COP15, if you're not overwhelmed by COPs. But immediately in his first week, he's brought back in the ban on small-scale gold mining, which can really decimate the land that it affects. And you can see pictures in our article about these legislative moves. But another thing that Lula's done that I think is really important is he's looking to establish an office which is devoted to, you know, exploiting the Amazon in a way that can benefit people in Brazil without using heavy environmentally damaging techniques. And it's actually within the Ministry of Science in Brazil. And that's being seen by many as a real indication that he's turning policy towards a more science-based approach. Which is very much in contrast to what Bolsonaro did, which was actually very much to strip science out of the administration. And scientific funding was part of that as well. I mean, scientists in Brazil have really been grappling with severe cuts to science funding. And that's an area where scientists are still looking to see whether some of the promises that Lula has made will come to pass. 
I mean, his path will not be easy. There are representatives in Congress who do not support his policy initiatives. So he will have to make his own alliances in order to get this legislation through the Brazilian Congress. And Flora, you and I spoke when you were at COP27, speaking of all the different COP acronyms, then, so that was the climate change COP, shortly after Lula had been elected. Did you get a sense from people you met there or, or spoke to about how they were feeling about the future? It was an amazing contrast because both at this past COP in Egypt and the previous years in Glasgow, Brazil was one of the biggest representatives. And certainly they had a beautiful, flashy, glamorous stand with lots of amazing kind of interactive lights you could play with and things like that. Whereas the previous one in Glasgow, this was seen as you know, the kind of ultimate example of greenwashing of an administration that had made very clear through its policies that it was not supporting the international agreement to try to achieve the Paris climate change goals. Now it was seen, even though Lula, of course, hadn't come to power yet, he didn't take office until the beginning of this year. It was a celebratory feeling. I mean, as you can imagine, most of the people at COP are there because they're absolutely passionate about reaching the Paris target. So they were very much aligned in that goal. There was really this feeling that they just could not wait to move forward with so much of this hard work and undoing so much of this damage as much as possible. That being said, I did talk to some representatives from Brazil who said it was actually a little bit difficult to be under the pressure of the spotlight and kind of be the focus of everybody's hopes and dreams because everybody knows it's easy to make promises. It's much, much harder to make those promises stick. Indeed, it feels very reminiscent of the switch from Trump to Biden, right? There's a very swift change of agenda, but that doesn't mean just because you've got a switch at the top, you have an easy path through to making change from a policy perspective. From the outside perspective of the global research community and the community of climate scientists and activists, it definitely feels like the loss of Donald Trump in the US. And there are more parallels, sadly, in that, you know, there was huge anti-Lula riots in Brazil just recently, which brought to mind similar attacks on the capital in the United States. So in no way is this going to be smooth sailing. And I think everybody's kind of got fingers and toes crossed that the outcomes are as positive as possible for the people of Brazil and as positive as possible for the global community who you know relies so much on the decisions that get made there. And of course, as people are watching the Amazon thinking about climate change moving forward, thinking about the size of the carbon sink, there will also be a lot of attention paid to the people that live in the Amazon, the indigenous people that live in Brazil. There are millions of them, and they were not particularly well supported. In fact, they were actively attacked under the Bolsonaro administration. So people will be looking to see what happens under a Lula presidency. Agree. Definitely want to keep an eye on there, both for the country itself and for the wider world, of course. Well, let's move on in this roundup of recent briefing stories. And I said that this was the second time we've done this. And the last time we all met to have a chat at this time of year, I talked about ichthyosaurs, right? These are extinct marine reptiles that live kind of contemporaneously with the dinosaurs, but weren't dinosaurs. And I'm going to try and keep this streak going, right? Because here we are a year later, and I've got another ichthyosaur story. And this is something I read about in Science News, and it's based on a paper in Current Biology. And it's given some insights into a, well, a rather unusual ichthyosaur graveyard. I love that we're distinguishing between usual and unusual graveyards, because, you know, I've seen so many ichthyosaur graveyards in my time. I mean, the obvious question I want to ask first is what was unusual about this ichthyosaur graveyard? Well, it's the fact that there are so many of them, I think, is kind of what's going on here. So let me set the scene then. So in Nevada, outside an abandoned gold mining town, there is this pretty famous park, right, called the Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park. 
okay? And there's lots of, well, as you might imagine, ichthyosaur fossils there, right? But all of one type, Shonisaurus, and I beg your pardon if I'm not pronouncing that quite correctly, right? Then this is one of the largest ichthyosaurs discovered, like 15 meters long, like as long as a bus. And these bones have been found all over this area. But since the 50s, there's one area that's been of particular interest to scientists where they found seven of these fossils in very, very close proximity. And they were all kind of in rocks that date back to about 225 million years. But it turns out there's other little areas around there where there's collections of these fossils. And it's kind of had scientists stumped for quite a long time, right? Why are there so many of them? I think maybe up to 100, I think, have been found so far. And why is it only them? Like They haven't found any other marine vertebrates. So no, no obvious prey for them to eat. And until this paper came out, it seemed that there was only adults there as well. But a little bit of light has been shone on this now. So you've got a giant collection of many, many of these ichthyosaurs with no prey. And so the scientists are trying to work out why on earth all these adults without the young'uns were getting together for an adult party. What is their adult party? But it turns out it's not just adults, is it? Well, that's absolutely right, Flora. And it turns out the key to this puzzle, actually, was that some other fossils were there, right? But in this case, they'd been put in museums and not really catalogued, or they hadn't been discovered yet. And these fossils were embryonic and newborn ichthyosaurs of this same type. And so we've now got the adults, and we've now got these tiny, tiny newborns. And so the researchers have come to the conclusion that this was potentially a birthing ground for these giant marine reptiles, okay? Because this area is Nevada now, it's obviously a desert, but it was under a pretty deep ocean at the time. And this kind of fits in with the behaviour seen now in modern kind of marine animals in some cases, right? Like whales, for example, will migrate from one area to another, maybe an area with lots of food to an area where there's no food, which would explain the complete lack of other marine fossils or maybe the ichthyosaurs have gone there because there are fewer predators to eat these babies as they're born and kind of swimming around it's a potential explanation for this puzzle that's had researchers scratching their heads for decades and ichthyosaurs are such handsome sounding animals as no one mentioned last year you know they've got big chubby bodies and kind of goggly eyes and they're kind of like funny dolphins and to imagine these gigantic creatures you know 230 million years ago taking themselves off to the birthing grounds to to give birth to their babies. Maybe something like the Baja Peninsula is now with grey whales. It's just a lovely thought that does make you feel kind of more connected to what was happening all that time back then. I was going to say the same thing. I remember going to the Baja Peninsula to Guadalajara and seeing the whales there. And it was fascinating, this kind of strange dead zone where there's almost nothing that lives, but it's very warm and comfortable and calm. And it's a great place to raise babies as long as you don't want to eat anything. And it shows that potentially this sort of behaviour is hundreds of millions of years old but i will say that while they may have kind of solved this part of the mystery there are a multitude of other questions as well right so we have adult ichthyosaurs we have baby ichthyosaurs where are the juveniles where are the ones in between they didn't find any of those so far and also i guess the big question on top of all of that is why did they all die at the same time and in the same place and this is the thing that there's been speculation about for a long time. Uh, toxic algae, uh, volcanoes, that was ruled out by these researchers looking at trace minerals in the rocks and what have you. A mass beaching, like you might see with whales these days. But no, this is quite a deep ocean. There was no shallows there. But given that 
there's these different clusters, right, in this area, shows that this has happened more than once. It's really fascinating, though, to find this sort of preserved moment in time, you know, because these fossils appear to be in the same strata. And it shows just how lucky you have to be to capture these moments in history, because not only do you need these moments to happen in an area where fossilization can happen, but also quite often things need to all die very quickly, very suddenly in a catastrophic event in order for us to be able to understand these kinds of behaviours. It's a rare find, and I can imagine there's going to be an awful lot more that will be investigated in this particular area as they look for more examples of this kind of behaviour. Oh, 100%. And it may be that it wasn't a catastrophic event at all. Maybe this is just part of the ichthyosaurs life cycle that, you know, we don't understand just yet, because there's so much we don't know about these animals, right? Like, they all went extinct before the dinosaurs did. Nobody knows why. I'm looking forward to this time next year when hopefully we can have our third instalment of Ichthyosaur Chat and maybe some of these big questions will be answered. Welcome to Ichthyosaur Cast, your all Ichthyosaur podcast, only one episode a year. Hey, on what an episode it is. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. We've got a few more stories to talk about today. Noah, why don't you go next? What have you got for us? Well, I have two stories, but the first one I'm going to continue with the, the cool animal story. But these ones are not... Uh, extinct animals they are in fact glass frogs have you seen these things before these fascinating looking sort of transparent creatures that live in south and central america my nan had some glass frogs but they were just terrible ornaments lived on the side i'm guessing they're not the same thing right i briefly got very excited that your nan had like the most amazingly cool pets um yeah so glass frogs they live in central and south america in the rainforests and they have this you know fascinating characteristic that their bodies are almost entirely transparent Now, the reason they have these transparent bodies is to help protect them from predators, specifically predators looking up into the leaves. If they're sitting on a leaf and there's light shining down through the leaf, you don't want to see a shadow of your body. But if you make your body transparent, then it's harder to see the outline. It's harder to see that you're there and it means that you can be more safe. Now, the problem with having a transparent body is that you have insides. So you can make your skin transparent. Scientists have said that's relatively simple, you know relatively simple evolutionarily to do you just get rid of all the pigment in your skin and you end up with kind of a see-through skin however things inside your body are much trickier so right now with a glass frog you'll see organs you'll see skeletons for example and the thing that really particularly could give them away is their own blood there's a wonderful line in a story that i read in the atlantic which is about a paper that was in science that says that the glass frog's blood betrays them and the reason their blood betrays them is because blood contains hemoglobin And that is a pigment that is necessary to ferry oxygen around your body. And you can't get rid of that pigment because then you wouldn't be able to get any oxygen anymore. So there's only so far you can evolve away pigment. However, the glass frogs have got a new trick that has just been discovered by researchers, which is genuinely baffling. I really want to know what it is. You've set that up so beautifully, Noah. Right. So how do they make their blood invisible, which they can't do, apparently? Yeah. So it's true. They can't make their blood invisible. Glass frogs are active during the night when there isn't a particular risk from predators that might seek them with their eyesight. During the day is when they're at risk. And so what they do is instead of making their blood invisible, they hide it. What they do is they take almost 90% of their pigmented red blood cells and hide them in their liver. They squish them all into their liver for 12 hours whilst they sleep during the day, which makes the amount of red blood cells that you can see in their bodies drastically fall makes them two to three times more transparent, according to the researchers that have studied this, and means that they enter a sort of a state of torpor. Now, in the article I read, this is described as a magic trick, and it is a really risky, dangerous thing to do for a whole host of reasons. When I saw this, when I was writing up the briefing, I was just thinking, this is amazing. This is like a cloaking device this thing has. And when you see it, basically, when it's totally relaxed, as opposed to basically what the researchers did, then they got them like, all worked up like not in a mean way 
just like got them all warmed up and excited. You could see the body changes so much. It's definitely one that's worth Googling to see how those images contrast. Absolutely. All these red blood cells, they squish them into this tiny pea-sized liver, which means that all that's running around their blood vessels then is a very small number of red blood cells, but plasma otherwise, which is just essentially clear with a slight bluish tinge. And that means that it's really hard to work out the outline of the frog anymore. And even the liver itself is also disguised. It's coated with these reflective crystals, which give it a kind of a shiny white look. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, this is also hard to do, right? A, because organs need oxygen. So they have to enter this kind of precarious state where all their organs go into kind of a hyper-dormant mode so they don't need to use that oxygen. But also, packing that many red blood cells into that smaller space should cause catastrophic clotting. I mean, that couldn't happen in a human, but the frogs seem to manage it okay, and scientists honestly don't have a clue how they're managing to do it. Not only that, but it takes only a couple of seconds for the blood to reperfuse around the body when they wake up and walk around. As soon as they wander around, blood just pushes out, and it's all just fine again completely baffling. I think glass frogs might be one of my favourite animals up there now with the mimic octopus. That is something else. It's super cool. Also, interestingly, they're the only animals that seem to have managed to pull off this transparency trick on land. In water, it's more common. It's still not very common, but it's easier to appear transparent with a fluid-filled body inside fluid. But on land, much more difficult to do. And these glass frogs have really taken it to the extreme. And as a a lapsed zoologist from my early times, this was very exciting when I saw it in your briefing, Flora. And I actually saw it just before another story, which is a completely different story, but I also thought I really wanted to talk about it because it's a really meaningful moment, which is that there has been an announcement of what will replace a statue of Robert E. Lee, a Confederate general that was toppled in 2020 during the Black Lives Matter protests in Roanoke, Virginia, is going to be replaced by a statue of Henrietta Lacks, which is a really significant moment historically, and insignificant for science as well, that she's being represented in this way. Of course, Henrietta Lacks is an astonishingly important figure in science, who was essentially completely unknown for so, so long. Tell us about her, Noah, for people who maybe aren't familiar. Indeed, she was a tobacco farmer. She was an African-American woman, and she sadly died when she was in her early 30s of cervical cancer. However, some of her cancer cells were harvested without her permission and became the first cells that were cloned outside of the human body. And that line of cells, which were known as HeLa cells, became really fundamentally important in the development of many, many, many biomedical advances, from IVF to cancer treatment to AIDS research. However, fundamentally, this was all based on a massive injustice, which was the use of someone's biological material without their consent, without their knowledge even. And there's been a real push for a long time by Henrietta Lacks's family to try to raise awareness of her, her contributions to science, and also to try to acknowledge the fact that she has been erased in such a significant way. And I think this statue being erected, which isn't the first statue that's been erected, there was also one erected at the University of Bristol in the UK, but it's a really significant step along this very long process of trying to counteract the erasure of Henrietta Lacks to ensure that people are aware of the contribution that she has made to science and to medical research. And this new statue is actually in her hometown. That's why it's such an apt location for this to be placed. And your family had said previously that this allows her to maybe represent so many people, especially African-American people in the United States, who were participants in you know all sorts of medical trials and other experiences at a time when knowledge and consent was not considered a part of the deal. Indeed, and the funds for this were were raised by a group called Roanoke Hidden History, which is an organization dedicated to elevating African-American contributions to culture, to society, to science. 
And this was also really significant because this is in place of a statue of Robert E. Lee, who was a Confederate general that was toppled. And there were strong calls at the time to replace that statue with something which represented African-American contributions, which have otherwise been erased. And so there's a series of reasons that this is a really meaningful announcement that's been made here. And we've got a few articles about the life and contributions of Henrietta Lacks over on nature.com slash news. And we'll put links to those in the show notes. But I think we've got time for one more Noah and Flora. Let's round the show out. Flora, anything else that stood out to you in the Nature Briefing in the last few days and weeks? Well, this was a story that kind of answered a question that I thought I already knew the answer to, because I've seen Jurassic Park, which is, what do dinosaurs sound like? I mean, we all know, right? Absolutely. It's a velociraptor. It's really easy. It's like, no, we know that. Everyone knows that. Well, apparently Jurassic Park is not 100% accurate in every way because the question what does dinosaurs sound like is actually very much an open question there is in fact very little fossil evidence of any kind of fossilized vocal structures from big dinosaurs like tyrannosaurus rex so no larynx no voice box and there is a question because we now have found some evidence of vocal material in fossils from very early birds that these physical elements can be fossilized. So why haven't we found any for dinosaurs? So that has led scientists to hypothesize that maybe dinosaurs, you know, maybe in fact they didn't roar. Maybe they made sounds more like the closed mouth vocalizations of birds. And when I heard of like how a dove would coo, maybe imagine a Tyrannosaurus rex with that closed mouth cooing sound. I just think that's such a fantastic kind of audio image. I adore it. We've got a cooing or clucking sort of dinosaur. How glorious that would be. (laughs) Exactly. And there's other structures, like the hadrosaur has this big hollow head crest. And we've all, I'm sure, imagined some nice honking, hooting sounds from the hadrosaur. But take away some of the actual vocalization from that. And you get a sound that um, some simulations have shown to be absolutely unlike anything we might have heard before something scientists describe as otherworldly. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many questions, obviously, about dinosaurs, like what colour were they? And there's been some sort of fossil evidence of potential pigments, that sort of thing, right? And then what did they sound like? Which is, of course, an impossible question to answer definitively. And yet scientists are making their best guess based on remaining anatomy or remaining fossils. Absolutely. And I think we look to birds, modern birds, and how they can give us hints as to what came before. And the sound-making structures can involve lots of kind of hollow cavities in the head and things like that that really are quite different from what we might see in modern reptiles, for example, or certainly in modern mammals that we maybe spend most of our time making sounds to, such as in this podcast. And you said that scientists haven't found any evidence of a vocal cords or a voice box or what have you. But I guess absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, right? Like, could it be that we just haven't found one yet and that the T-Rex would roar like you might imagine in a Hollywood movie? That's the thing with fossils. It's a wonder that we find so much amazing stuff that we do. But And these are considered soft tissues. So they are much less likely to be preserved. I think that's why it was so interesting for scientists when they found the vocalization organs of ancient birds because that showed that it is possible for these things to be fossilized so the wonderful article i put in the briefing from bbc future which is a good long read that's why they really start to look at some of these very complete and amazing tyrannosaurus rex fossils 
And scientists were able to really look at that and say, like, what are the missing pieces here? And what might that indicate about how this creature really lived? Fascinating. I genuinely love what paleontologists can find out about these ancient dinosaurs. Even by the lack of an apparatus, we can get to cooing. How wonderful. Right. Well, let's leave it there then, Tim. I think thank you both so much for joining me. And Flora, before we go, why don't you tell people where they can get more stories like this, but delivered to their inbox in, I don't know, email form, let's say. That's right. I'll be happy to email you great stuff like this every day if you sign up at nature.com slash briefing. Well, Flora and Noah, thank you both so much for joining me. This has been the latest edition of Ichthyosaur of the Nature Podcast, (laughs) and I can't wait to have you back on the show again soon. Thanks so much. It's been great being here. Thanks, Ben. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.